0: Thank you and good morning. Good morning. Oh, go. That's better. It worked in the first service, too. Well, um, for those of you who don't know me, as Evan mentioned, my name is John Woods. My wife, Rochelle, and I uh, became part of the Brush Prairie family here about uh, no, six years ago in 2012 when we moved to the area. Um, we don't have any kids, uh, we are going on eight years of marriage uh, in about a week, so you know, fingers crossed. Uh, <laughs> um, we don't, uh, like I said, we don't have any kids, but we do have a couple of dogs, uh, a delightful German Shepherd Border Collie, uh, she's just, she's a bundle of fun, her name is Jasmine. And then we have a, a, a semi-psychotic um, <laughs> He's a Siberian Husky, and he's super stubborn, Um, but we love them both. Uh, I I began a journey uh, four years ago uh, at Multnomah University in Portland. Some of you are familiar with that school. Some of you have gone there. Uh, Some of you are going there. Um, And uh, in the Master's Divinity Seminary Program, um, my, my tentative graduation date is 2020, uh, part of the reason it's taking so long is I work full-time as an insurance broker. So that's a little bit about me for those of you who don't know me. My desire is to be in full-time pastoral ministry in the future, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to bring the word this morning and to hear what God has to say, not me. That, in particular, is going to become more evident what I mean by that as we go on. Now, Psalm 10 is our text today, and it has, it has something in it that we... That we need to hear. You know, it's not necessarily one that's super familiar to us. Um, It's not one that we just automatically go to for comfort or uh, the way to express ourselves. But it has something for us that we desperately need. And it's an ability to be able to go to God honestly in the hard times, in the difficult times... And express our lack of faith. Express how we how we are feeling at the moment that he just isn't around. It's a heavy it's a heavy passage in some ways. Uh, it's not one of the lighter ones. This is a lament psalm, uh, and so it's, it's meant to express the heaviness of our hearts. It's meant to express the difficult emotions. It's it's meant to express those times where where we feel angry or frustrated or uh, in despair. And there's many of psalms in, in, the, in the Psalter that are like that. But we're going to find that even though the psalmist starts off asking why, he doesn't get an answer. But that's the cry of our hearts oftentimes is, Why, God? Why aren't you doing anything? And why aren't you showing up right now? And we, we ask this question, but we don't get an answer. And so we're not alone. The psalmist experiences the same thing. He asks the question and doesn't get an answer. But what he does find is that God's inaction now, his seeming flippancy towards our situations, it guarantees his action later. Just because he's not acting now doesn't mean he's not going to act. And because of this, we're going to find that God wants us to be honest with Him. He wants us to pray for His kingdom to come, and He wants us to trust Him. That's just a little roadmap of where we're going. Before we get into the Psalms, there's a couple of things that we need to keep in mind. The Psalms are poetry; they're song. In some ways, they're meant to be sung, and some songs have been made out of them. But poetry—if uh, you take a look, most of most of what we think for poetry—you can go to the next slide. Uh, revolves around this idea of rhyme and meter. Roses are red, violets are blue, sugar is sweet, and so are you. Uh, the, the, the last word of uh, the second and fourth line both rhyme, blue and you. And that's how we typically think of poetry. And we'd be in trouble if uh, that was how Hebrew poetry worked because um, not many of us actually read Hebrew. But God in his wisdom picked a language that allows... The author to communicate in such a way that anybody, regardless of how it's translated, can appreciate it. And so it, 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 Hebrew poetry revolves around two things, parallelism and imagery. And parallelism is just this idea of mirrored words, mirrored thoughts, and the way things are structured. And we'll give an example of that. And, and that is throughout the Psalms, and it's multiple places in this particular psalm. And sometimes the mirroring happens within the same verse. Sometimes it happens in between whole verses that parallel each other. There's a couple times where that happens in Psalm 10. But um, not only is there parallelism, but there's imagery. And images, you know, they say that a picture's worth a thousand words. And that's because it speaks to us. It, It captures our imaginations, it touches us in a side that's not, you know, our cognitive side. It's not, not the side where we're all logical and, and trying to work out things. It's, it, it captures us even before our brain has a chance to catch up. And so you're going to see that word pictures abound in the Psalms. We'll give, a, we'll give a, an example of both, um, uh, both parallelism first and then imagery in a moment. So parallelism, verse 1 of chapter 10. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? You'll notice that uh, both the first and the second line, both of them begin with why. And then moves on to the subject, you, God. Stand far away and hide yourself. Those are similar ideas. So look for similar ideas as you're going through Scripture in the Psalms. And the second line adds a modifier in times of trouble. So what the psalmist is getting across is that, God, you seem absent in times of trouble. You seem like you're not there, and I'm having a bit of a crisis of faith right now, and I want to know that I can trust you. Have any of us felt that way? I know I have. If we're honest, most of us have. Psalm 10, is uh, it, it, it is... Likely a psalm of David, and there's a couple reasons for that. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, this is what Jesus would have been reading quite a bit. Uh, First century believers, they would have read out of this. Um, They actually merge in the Septuagint. It merges Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 into a single psalm. And um, there's a couple of uh, uh, Hebrew... outstanding Hebrew manuscripts that also do the same thing. Uh, So these psalms are closely related if they're not part of the same one. I think they are part of the same one, and part of the reason is they they form an acrostic when you merge them together. And you can't see that in English, but in the Hebrew, what that means is basically the first line of the first, first um, first word of the first line starts with, you think of the ABCs. So A, then B, then C, and that pattern goes through the psalm. And it's broken up in a couple key places to draw attention to the fact that anytime evil or wicked is, is mentioned, it breaks the pattern. Because anytime evil and wickedness come up, that's not how things are supposed to be. And it's only God who can make them right, and only the king who brings order back into this chaos. So I think, I think that Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 are part of the same psalm, and I think that David wrote it. I'm not, that's not going to be a hill that I die on, though, so... Um, but as we get into the text, we've, we, we see in, in verse 1 that, uh, that this follows this lament idea. The lament has four movements. The first is the cry. This is in your notes. There's a cry to God about the situation. There's a cry to God about what the, the author is going through. And then it moves in verse 2 through 11 to, to detail out the, the complaint that he has what is this time of trouble that he's talking about? Finally, verse, uh, verse 12, there's a shift to when the, the psalmist calls out to God to intervene. Do something about this. And it ends on a high note. Verses 16 through 18, he again expresses confidence in God. So those are the major sections of this psalm and the major movements. And it starts in a very low place and it ends on a high note. It starts in a place of frustration, confusion, anger, despair even in some ways. Because this isn't just David looking around and going, man, things are pretty rotten here. He's having a crisis of faith because as he looks, verse 2, the situation, in arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. They hotly pursue the poor. The wicked are, for lack of a better sense, bullying the poor. And and we, we read this and we go, okay, well, yeah, that doesn't sound good. In fact, that sounds bad. But there's more than that here because for David and any psalmist who's writing this, if it's not David, they have a background here that their theology, their understanding of who God is and how God has revealed himself to them at Mount Sinai and, again, at the second giving of the covenant in Deuteronomy, that God is a defender of the defenseless and he will hold all men accountable for how they treat the defenseless and that he himself is their protector. We see this in Exodus chapter 22 and again in Deuteronomy 10. So the psalmist is saying, God, this situation that's going on doesn't fit my understanding of who you are. It doesn't fit how you've revealed yourself to be. Because not only are the arrogant proud and they they abuse the poor, the wicked boast of the desires of their soul. Verse 3, the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. Verse 4, the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. The wicked don't seek God. All his thoughts are there is no God. And you think, well, that's that's pretty bad. You know, shouldn't God do something about this? And that's what David's issue is. Verse 5, his ways, talking about the wicked, his ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. Rather than the wicked being judged, rather than God holding them accountable, what the psalmist sees is he sees God doing nothing and the wicked are prospering. Psalm 1 says that the way of the wicked will perish. So the psalmist is having this, this theological difficulty And and wrestling with God about who he is and trying to understand why are you not doing anything? This doesn't seem right. The wicked act as if God is dead. That's what David's saying here. All his thoughts are there is no God. In the ancient Near East, the king was the one who protected his subjects, and there were lots of little kings, and they all had their own, in a sense, group of people they were responsible for. And so when subjects were being harassed, it was the king who was their champion. You remember when David goes out to fight Goliath, you know, they have, the Philistines have their champion, and Israel is sitting quaking in their shoes because King Saul isn't doing anything. King Saul should have been their champion, but he wasn't. king is dead. Because this isn't just the king in Israel. This is, this is looking at God as the king of the whole earth and seeing that the wicked get away with this stuff. Because there's no king to defend them. In their pride, the wicked believe that God is dead. He is not going to do anything about it. They presume Verses 6 through 11, that they will not be held accountable. Take a look at verse 6. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations I shall not meet adversity. A parallel verse in verse 11. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hid it in his face. He will never see it. I'm not going to be held accountable. When you believe that God isn't going to hold you accountable, you can live like hell. Did I just say that in church? Yes, I did. But that's that's the that's the belief and understanding. When you're not going to be held accountable, you can treat people however you want to treat them. And the wicked do. They treat people like objects for their own amusement or pleasure or benefit. You know, this uh um this idea of objectifying humans and and making humans less than what they really are, um it's It's so subtle, we do it all the time without even thinking about it. I'm sure some of you actually did it on your way here as you were driving. No, so, you want an example? Okay. Um, That stupid idiot! Oh my gosh, why is he going so slow? Doesn't he know I'm late for church? Yeah. We do it all the time without even thinking about it. It's just become second nature to us. Because this is how we as humans are wired, And in many ways, we live like practical atheists. We we think that uh, God is not going to hold us accountable. So whether you resonate with the psalmist or you resonate with the wicked today, I'm not sure which camp you're in. But God has something to say to each of us. They presume they will not be held accountable. The image that's given here in verses 8 through 10, take a look. He, talking about the wicked, sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion. In his thicket, he lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws them into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his night, by his might. Tongue is tied. This is the image. The image here, what's the image? It's the image of a lion. A lion that's stalking its prey, that's pursuing something that's weaker than it, something that's vulnerable, and something that it is seeking to do harm to for its own benefit. That's what the wicked are like, David says. It's a graphic picture. And um, if, if, uh, if you recall, last week, um, uh, Brad, Brad Williams uh, shared Psalm 23 with us and reminded us that, uh, uh, that David was a, was a shepherd and that, uh, that sheep were near and dear to his heart and that, uh, that God is like a shepherd of his sheep. And so that this image of a lion is one that threatens the innocent. And David, this, this is conjuring up anger in him. It's conjuring up fear. It's conjuring up this idea of powerlessness to help in the situation. So the images are here to, to help us understand what, what is going on in his heart. And what is what his complaint is to God. It feels like God isn't around to intervene and he's not doing anything about it. But something shifts here in verse 12. Take a look. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Then again in verse 15. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. He's asking God to intervene. He's calling out to God. His eyes, if you notice, his eyes are lifting. He started off looking around him at all the situations that are going on and saying something's wrong and something's messed up. And now he's shifted his gaze and it's starting, he's, he's starting to gain perspective. He's starting to look to God. And, and he says, in verse 12, like we said, arise, O Lord, lift up your hand. This, this, this image of the hand and the arm is throughout the entire section here through verses 12 and 15, 12 through 15. Lift up your hand. And then in verse, uh, verse 14, uh, that you may, you, you, you see, you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands to help the helpless. This idea that God, move into action. That's what he's asking. God, would you take action here? The hand and the arm uh, both speak of power and strength. In a sense, he's saying, God, would you be strong in this situation where the weak and the powerless have no strength? Would you be their strength? Would you break the arm of the wicked? Would you be who you say that you are, who you've revealed yourself to be? He's praying in accordance with the scriptures that he already knows. He's reaffirming some of the things that he's come to believe, even though he doesn't see it playing out practically around him. In a sense, he's saying, God, would your kingdom come? Would your will be done? That sound familiar? Yeah. Pretty sure Jesus taught us to pray the same way. I know we're Baptists and we don't really do the Lord's Prayer a whole lot. But, you know, our Father who's in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's exactly what the psalmist is praying here. God, would your kingdom break into this time and space, in this reality? Because what's going on around is not right. And our hearts cry that same thing. And we go, God, all of the brokenness around us and all of the, all of the hurt, it's almost overwhelming. And we, we sometimes come to a place of doubt. And we come to a place where we just, we don't think that we have the ability to, Even anymore to trust God. And this psalm is David expressing that where he's losing faith in God. Man after God's own heart, he's having a crisis of faith. But he reminds himself of the truth, even though he doesn't see it play out in reality around him. And that's where faith comes in. Faith is evidence of things not seen. If it was sight, it wouldn't be faith. You know, relationships are based on two things. Honesty and trust. And God is inviting us to both of those in this passage. Verse 1 through 11. Be honest with him about where we're at. Don't try and pretend that we're doing better than we are, that we trust him. It is well with my soul. We sang that song. I know That for some of us, it is not well with our soul today. Right? We're going through heavy things. This psalm expresses those heavy things. But it is well with my soul is also a statement of faith. And that's where this psalm ends. Confidence in God. That he is king. And even though we don't see him acting now, that guarantees he will act later. Because that's what faith is. God, I don't see it playing out and panning out as I expect it, but I trust you anyway. Because what I, what I know is that you are king and you're in control. You're sovereign and I can trust you. The psalm started on a very low note and it's ending on a high note. Verse 16, the Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. God's inaction now guarantees his action later because he is always true to what he says. Even when we don't see that play out in our own circumstances, and the lives of others the way we would expect, because we want to put God in some sort of a box, and we want to try and we want to try and make sure that he that he does life in a way that we approve of. Otherwise, we're like hashtag not my God. My God wouldn't do that, and we start to doubt and we start to lose faith. But those times where we where we come and we are having a crisis of faith, and we're not seeing God act the way that we would expect him to act those are the times where it's an invitation to trust god it's an invitation to press into this and to be honest with him about our doubts and to be honest with him about what we're really going through and in that place he will meet us and he will lift our gaze from the things around us he will lift our gaze to him and as we do that we will have confidence in him again that he is king now, and always. Not just king in the past, not just king in the future when Jesus comes again, but he's king right now. That has implications for us as we live today because it means that we can trust him even when things seem out of control, even when things feel like they're spiraling, when we get that news from the doctor that just shatters our world because a loved one is dying. We can hey, God, Why? Why would you do that? Why won't you intervene? You heal other people. Why don't you heal? But he doesn't answer the why. Does he? The text doesn't give us a why. The psalmist starts with a why. He wants to know why, God, you're not doing anything. But the text doesn't answer that. Instead, the text goes, I'm going to have confidence in God. I'm going to trust him. Because he's king. And that's all we get from the text is that he is king. We don't get any answers. We can try and hop around in the book and look for whys, but we don't get the answers because trust isn't about answers. Trust is about relationship, trust is about who is our God and our God is king. I'm not king. You're not king. He doesn't have to play by our rules. He doesn't have to abide by what we think he needs to do. He is God. We are not. And I'm very passionate about this, mainly because I forget this so often. I forgot it yesterday. As I was preparing for this message, I've had two months to prepare for this. Way too much time, okay? (laughs) Way too much time. I wanted four hours today, not 40 minutes. As I was preparing for this message, I wanted to preach a different message. I picked this text two months ago when Bob said that he was going to be going, and he gave us slots, pick your text. And I was fired up, and I I had a message that I wanted to share, and it was about about stepping into the, the plight of the helpless, and it was about being God's hands and feet now. And I realized yesterday as a friend of mine spoke to me, And he said, John, the reason you're having so much trouble with this is you're not being honest with the text. The text doesn't go there. That's not the answer that the text is talking about. That message is in Scripture, but it's not here. But I didn't trust God enough because that was the message that I wanted to share. Because that's what I see around me, and that's what the brokenness that I see. And that's what's hurt me for the last three, four years. And I've been the psalmist, and I've and I've been here, and I've and I've stood at this place where he says, "Why, O oh Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble?" And seminary is a great place to get ruined, by the way. In case you didn't know that, <clears throat> it's a great place to have a crisis of faith. But I wanted to preach a different message, a message that was, God's not doing anything, so we need to. That was going to be my thrust of where I was going to go with you guys today. And it goes completely opposite where the text goes. I'm just being honest here. You, know, you guys get honesty when you talk to me, so <clears throat> if you heard my last message, you know what I mean. I wanted to preach a message that was John's message, not God's. From this text, God's message would have been there, but it would, have been, it would have been dishonest. Because I didn't trust God enough that he could speak through this passage to meet the needs of our hearts today. Because I didn't believe he was king, and I've had a hard time believing that for the last several years. Because I feel like he either doesn't care or he's not in control. That's how I feel. But it's not what's true. And the psalmist reminds us that what we feel we should express to God because we need to be honest about it. But we have to be reminded about what is true to give us hope. To remember that God is king. And to pray for that kingdom to come. It's a real simple message today. It's not flowery. It's not, it's not polished. I was up till 2 in the morning last night changing things. <clears throat> That's never fun. But I hope that, that, this, that this text is one that you come back to. It may not have been a friend before, but I hope it's a friend after this. One that allows you to express your heart to God when you're going through difficult times, when you don't understand, when you feel like God's not acting the way he ought to. Like he's not holding up his end of the bargain or he's not who he says he is. It's okay to ask why, he just won't get an answer. And I'm okay with that. Because there's not a why that would actually satisfy my heart. And my heart is, God, I feel like you're not there right now. And so what he reminds us of is, I am here, and I'm with you. I'm with you through this. I am king. Always have been, always will be, and nothing that happens on this earth will ever shake that. Yahweh is king over the whole earth. That message resounds through the psalms loud over and over again. It starts in Psalm 2. It's echoed here, and it echoes on. Yahweh is king over the whole earth. We can put confidence in him. We can trust him. Not because we always see everything panning out the way we want it to or the way that we think it ought to, but because he's king and we're his people. That's a comforting thought. I'd like to close in a word of prayer. Would you join me? God, we thank you that you are king and we are not. We thank you, Lord, that you welcome our honesty. You welcome us bringing the raw things in our hearts to you and to say, God, I don't understand. I'm hurting I'm confused. I feel like I can't trust you. Thank you that we can bring that to you, Lord, and that you want that. You want us to be honest with you. Lord, thank you that, that you will make everything right. Your kingdom is coming. And we ask, Lord, that it would come soon. Lord, in the meantime, may we remember that even though we don't see the king, the king is still on the throne. May we trust you with the things that come into our lives, whether that is the health problems, whether it's financial crisis, whether it's personal struggles. Lord, would you meet our hearts today? In the broken places, the psalm, the lament psalm, Lord, is meant to express the hard things. Lord, would you meet us here in these places, and would you remind us to lift our eyes to see you, Lord, that we would have the hope that you are king, that we would be reminded of that, Lord, when things seem darkest. We thank you, Lord, for Psalm 10 and the message that it is and how it speaks to our hearts. Holy Spirit, would you take these words, would you burn them into us? Would we not let them go? Would we say, God, I will trust you in the midst of all the things that seem like I can't. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name.